Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have a very special guest on today. Um, I recently was introduced to this gentleman. His name is Mike Muni. Um, Mike is actually the creator of an entire industry, like literally. Um, and I'm just going to let him tell the story as we get into it. So I want to welcome my new buddy, Mike Muni, to the show. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. And hello, everybody. Nice to be with you on this uh, strange environment we're all finding ourselves in. It is odd right now, isn't it? Yeah. Did you ever think? I know. Obviously, who could have thought anything like this, at least in America? It's crazy, man. I know. I, I know. I, it reminds me of of the book 1984 by George Orwell. Yeah, I know. know. He he may have been off a few years, but uh, gee, many. So, so, you know, I, um, and what an appropriate time for this because, um, you know, this show is all about helping people get unstuck and, and have a breakthrough in life. And, and man, you have definitely had some breakthroughs in life and and I'm excited to hear here because I haven't heard the whole story. I've heard bits and pieces of it from you. Um, but you know, the, the, let's start with like where you were born and raised. Why don't we tell everybody about that? All right. Uh, before I do, uh, I want to make one correction from your introduction of me. I am the co-creator. There was one other guy. So there were two of us uh, uh, that were the inventors of ACT that created the whole CRM industry. Uh, just want to put yeah. that on the record, okay? Yes, <laughs> co-creator. Uh, My bad, you're right. Yeah. Um, well, I was born and raised in Chicago, a uh, blue-collar family, lived above uh, taverns, as they call them in Chicago, for a good part of the first 10 years of my life. Uh, got beat up as a kid by gangs, uh, went to Catholic school. I was raised uh, Catholic, uh, oldest of six kids. Um in a relatively uh, poor family. Uh, my dad started out as an apprentice carpenter, discovered he didn't like that, and he went into the um, front office just being the payroll master, which you know didn't pay much, but uh, he didn't want to work with his hands. He wanted to work with his mind. And so um, I-, I was born and raised around uh, the construction industry for uh, all the way through college. As a matter of fact, uh, when I turned 16, all of the sons well, 16 years or older of any of the workers in the general construction company that my dad worked for were allowed to work during uh, summer school or whenever semester break um, and making $7 an hour back in the late 60s, early 70s. And that was a dollar an hour era. So um, I literally did that. And as a result, uh, paid my way through college and graduated with no debt uh, from the University of Illinois in Champaign. Wow. Uh, but it but it also did some it did a number of things for me to be around construction workers, which I have a, a, a deep heart for coming from a blue collar family. Yeah, uh, they're the salt of the earth people. Uh, we can't live without them. Uh, and they're down to earth people. And so I learned uh, and I've gone through stages of arrogance in my life. I mean, et cetera, college education. These people aren't right. Uh, but they, they put they put me down uh, when I started to get a little bit high, uh, too high for my uh, own good around them. And so they actually helped level me. And so I just want to express an appreciation to people in the construction industry because they helped make me the person I am today. Isn't it funny though, how that, that works? Cause I've, I've been there. I, I was born in my, my, my parents were both factory workers, right? So I, mm. I, I know <laughs> in the, in the late sixties and seventies and, and I, I'm familiar with that, 
reaching certain levels of arrogance <laughs> and you're like, and then somebody checks you and it's, yeah. So that's yeah. incredible. You know what though? That already tells me like who you are as a person, because to be able to just say that and, and admit it is, is incredible. So well, the other thing I have to mention, though, being a, a Chicago born and raised, is I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's yeah. important to any Chicagoans out there. <laughs> I'm not a White Sox fan. I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> we just lost half the audience. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. So, so, so you said. I mean, you, you, you went. So you went to college. What was your? Um, what did you study in college? What was your major? I'm the first college graduate uh, in my family. And when I went to college, my dad's dad, my grandfather, and my dad thought, you know, uh, we're proud of you, son, obviously. Uh, what are you going to be in life? And I said, well, I don't really know. And they said, well, a lawyer sounds good. So, okay, I'm going to go to school to then go on to law school and I'll be a lawyer. I mean, it was pretty much set in stone at that point, as funny as that sounds. But again, you've got to remember the era. I mean, this is the pre-PC era. Most people were in the corporate world, there wasn't anything known as entrepreneurialism. Uh, I don't even remember ever hearing that word when I was in college or as a young adult. Uh, so, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I was accepted to law school. Uh, I, I, my, my degree is in finance. Uh, with I graduated with honors in finance. I was going to be a lawyer that did the transactions on the uh, evaluation, economic base, um, you know, all, everything surrounding the buying and selling of um, commercial real estate, including skyscrapers. There's an actual certification for that. That's where I was headed. So wow. I was accepted to law school, but you know, life has a way of throwing uh, curveballs at you, which we all have to learn to, to do. I mean, look at the curveball we're in right now, if you want to call it the, uh, you know, what we're going through right now so nicely. Yeah. But uh, a, week, a week after I graduated from college, um, Ken, looking forward to going to law school, uh, there was a concrete truck driver strike in Chicagoland and Chicago is a union city. All the unions supported the strike and, and I was out of work for about a month. Well, being out of work for about a month prevented me from having enough money to go to law school because my parents certainly couldn't afford it. So, uh, so, you know, the strike was settled. I went back uh, working as a laborer with a college degree. Now I got up to November, uh, started to snow and I was working on a, a skyscraper, but we were excavating uh, you know, going down. And since there was no shelter, I was laid off because of the snow and uh, mm -hmm. married uh, our first child, little baby. And uh, thank God, a friend of mine who worked at IBM as a salesman in the mainframe era came up to me and he said, have you ever thought about going into sales? And I said, no, why? And he said, well, there's an opening in our branch office in downtown Chicago. And he said, I'll make the introduction, uh, but the rest is up to you. So I said, hey, <laughs> he's digging ditches and I need a job. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. So you <laughs> you went from working construction to a, a sales job at IBM? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> no, I know it's, it, you know, it's the serendipity of life. You know, if it hadn't been for him as a friend, number one, and number two, that he was working at IBM, I would have never joined IBM. I mean, it was a mainframe world. People didn't think about computers. They were these w way off things, right? That nobody had any concept of, nor would they really give it a, a second thought about. Wow. Uh, but I needed a job. And so the way IBM worked back then, the very first thing you had to do is take an IQ test. Uh, and they, you know, I showed up that first day. Um, obviously the appointment was scheduled. They gave me paper and pencil. 
put me in a, an isolated room and said, you have 60 minutes, start. And I was shut in for that room for an hour, uh, came out, and I obviously, I probably just passed it, but I passed it. And that, then... This was an IQ test? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they want... IBM didn't care if you had a degree in phys ed, not the demean phys ed. I'm just saying they didn't care what your degree was in. They were going to give you an IQ test, and they were going to evaluate your character. So here's here's what my uh, interview process was like. I had two interviews uh, each day over three days, and each interview was a minimum of two hours long. Uh, so I had six intensive interviews. And remember, I was I was not looking for a job. I was going to go to law school, so I didn't take advantage of the University of Illinois uh, you know, preparation to interview or write a resume. I had none of that. I mean, you talk about being unprepared and winging it. Uh, so I'm in these interviews and I think that's normal. Uh, anyway, to make a long story short, uh, after the third day, uh, I was offered the job, uh, but I almost lost it with the branch manager, which is another story. But uh, when, I, when I got hired, they told me why I uh, had to go through three days of interviews. And, and uh, the reason was, at that time, the federal government was suing IBM, wanting to break them up. And so IBM and their uh, higher wisdom uh, than many politicians, at least back then, yeah. uh, was crossing every T and dotting every I. And they, they said, Mike, you had everything going against you. You are a white male. I hate to say that to the audience here, but that's what was said to me back, back then because they were being careful to hire equal employment. So they had to have diversity. And so because I was a white male, I was low on the totem pole. So they had to evaluate me in a more intensive fashion yeah. to uh, uh, um, stand as a, a group of managers saying, no, this is the one we want. And that's wow. how I got into IBM. Wow. Yeah. Holy crap. So you got into sales at, and, and just for the, um, I don't know, maybe millennials <laughs> or, or, or anybody, um, born after 1989, um, you want to explain what a mainframe is and what, <laughs> like, what, like, what, I mean, I know obviously, but what, what would, um, what would a, a mainframe salesperson for IBM do on a day-to-day -day basis? What were you selling and who were you selling it to? Okay, good question. Uh, there were two kinds of salespeople at IBM back then. Uh, and the, these are odd names, I know, but here's what we were called. I was either a plan three or a plan four. The difference between the two is this, and I was a plan three. A plan three's job was to find brand new uh, IBM customers. In other words, they didn't have uh, anything IBM, uh, nothing. Remember, there was another division of IBM that sold typewriters and copy machines. Uh, of course, then the, the, the mainframes, they couldn't have any IBM equipment whatsoever. So Plan 3's job was to find new customers. Wow. Once, we, once we closed the customer, we were able to keep them for one year because of the relationship. And, and it's all about relationship selling, which has everything to do with the eventual uh, co-invention of ACT you know, 10 years later. But anyway, yeah. a plan four, they could only sell to existing IBM customers. So after a year, I had to turn over all of my customers to a plan four so that they could continue to upgrade them to more equipment, bigger equipment, et cetera. You know, more computer screens, more powerful machines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so- an example of a customer? Like- Well, they were, they were obviously big companies back then. I, I'm talking, you know, I don't want to say Fortune 500, but- uh, the original founder of IBM, Thomas Watson, 
himself in that era, I mean, talking early 1900s, uh, you know, basically said that the world would need no more than four computers once he started IBM. The world, imagine that. That was his wow. vision. So um, uh, let's just call it the Fortune 10,000. Companies that had a lot of employees, you know, and it was the typical applications, um, the fundamental ones, payroll, accounts receivable, accounts payable, you know, supply chain stuff. I mean, um, that's what we sold the computers for back then. Word processing. Automated, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, there wow. was no such thing as word processing. There mm -hmm. was a company that started later on by an ex-IBMer, uh, Wang. They were, they were known as Wang Computers, and they were exclusive word processing. They, you would call it a, basically a computer. It looked like one, a small one. Uh, but it was meant for, um, you know, the administrative pool. They would have that, a dedicated machine to do word processing. And Wang, at one time, was a very big company that sold nothing but word processing. And that, so that that's back in the day when um, you had the secretarial pools doing <clears throat> doing this on typewriters. Right. When I had to put in a um, request for proposal for, you know, prospective customer. Uh, the, uh, the turnaround by the secretarial pool at IBM was three days. Wow. To those of you that ever watched the series, uh, AMC series, Mad Men, you know, near the, the final season, they, they showed the, uh, the PR agent, the advertising agency installing an IBM 360. And it was like, woo, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what it was like. It was so disruptive to bring in a computer. And imagine back then, again, most people weren't familiar with computers and what they could mean, but it was displacing jobs back then. But it also, look at all the jobs that the uh, high-tech industry has created. Um, wow. But there was, always, there was always relative fear in that era, right? Yeah. Um, so. Hey, we have an ACT fan on here. Robert Wall says ACT was his jam. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Robert. Hey, you know what I like to say? Uh, you know, uh, Pat and I were the two inventors of it, but it was everybody that bought a copy and told others about it that really made ACT the success it became. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it really does take a whole community uh, and a global community at that as it grew up to be and have. Uh, but, but I do always take opportunity to thank the customers. So, Robert, thank you and any others on the line. Here, uh, Rick, get, Rick get, Denley. Yeah. Rick Denley says he used it from day one. <laughs> well, awesome. well, you can see the box behind me, the gray one. That was uh, Act 1.0. And then the red oh box, that was, that was DOS. And then the red box was the second version, uh, 2.0. And that was uh, the last version of DOS. And People well, don't even know what DOS means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Further down here, I'll show you a quick, uh, see all of my other uh, Act boxes oh that I God. have. Uh, I've got every you know copy of Act. I've got a boxes up in my attic of Act memorabilia, brochures, business plans. Jeez. You name it, I got it. Yeah, it's like the uh, uh, an Act museum. I, I have it. Obviously, I mean, little did I know back then how valuable I would view it today. Because uh, you know, the, the, as I'm sure we'll get to, the whole story of how Act came to be is not what most people uh, would think at all. Yeah. Uh, it was a hail mary desperation pass. But to think back then. Uh, how the, the legacy that it would create. Little, we didn't have that kind of a vision. Uh, we were just trying to stay in business. So, you know, obviously I'm very proud of what it did uh, and is still doing today. It's still on the market, believe it or not, 33 years. It is. I Googled it. <laughs> I know, I know. Who would have Who would have thought, name, name, you know, on one hand, five software products from that era that are still on the market. You, you can't, I, I can't. 
No. So, you know, ACT really did achieve something way beyond, and I'm being nice here, um, my, my wildest imagination. I mean, the only other one that, and it's unfortunate that it survived. That's Windows. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I know, kidding. I know. I'm kidding. We're probably going to get shut down for that comment. <laughs> hey, I don't mind. I'm, I've been an Apple exclusive user since 2004, so I converted myself. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, so wow, you started your career. I, th this is what I love about about this story is it, your story is <clears throat> it's it's the American dream literally like yeah I was a construction worker um, from a poor family and 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 you know <laughs> went into sales at IBM that doesn't happen number one but but it did um, but then then you know it sounds like you you got some success. How, how did it go in the sales division of IBM for you? How, how did things go for you? It was the best. Well, in that era, there were only two corporations in the entire world that were renowned for their sales training, IBM and Xerox. And I was in sales training for six months. The way IBM worked back then is everybody that they hired in that calendar month across all of America constituted my class. Um, and my class size ended up being 66 people they hired in December of 1975. Okay. And so we were brought together over the next six months. We'd have three weeks, you know, I mean, uh, all nighters, et cetera. We got very close, but these were also my uh, competitors because what IBM did during that six months was rank us and greatest. And they were going to fire the bottom 10% upon uh, the six month completion of sales training. And so uh, even though we were colleagues, we were also, you know, careful, right? We wanted to up the other person. I, I ended up graduating. Uh, six out of my class is 66. So I just made the top 10%. Um, and it was the best training that I've ever had in my life to this day. In fact, I still have my original IBM sales material and I offer uh, uh, sales training uh, workshops um, that are because wow. what they taught us was timeless and universal. And as I reflect back on it, Ken, I've got to say this about sales school. They did not teach us how to sell. Yes, they taught us techniques. And I mean, I'm not saying they didn't teach us how to sell. But what they taught us at a higher aspirational level, which was more important to them, was how to deal with more people more effectively, the result of which would then be greater sales. It was all about connecting with people. They instilled in me in sales school the value of connecting. And let me, let me make one comment going back to the, my, my final interview uh, with the branch manager at IBM. I mean, this is how close I came to the precipice of utter obliteration uh, and losing out of an opportunity to work for IBM. So I made it through these three days. I pretty much thought, well, I'm in now. And the, my caretaker, uh, a systems engineer uh, by the name of Mary Ritchie, uh, one of the most classy ladies in my entire life I've ever met. Um, she said, Mike, I'm going to take you into the branch manager's office now. But before I do, I've got to ask you one question. If he offers you the job, are you prepared to take it? And I, of course, <laughs> yes, I would, obviously. <laughs> You know, but to go to the branch manager's office meant you pretty much had it. It was, you know, a formality or that's yeah. at least how I looked at it. So here's what happened. And I, I, I'll just uh, uh, give you the, the short story. He had a big office, corner office looking over Lake Michigan, right? Beautiful office. And he set me down on his couch, which was across his office. And, he, you know, we were having small talk, what you would call small talk. And then he asked me this simple question. He said, so, Mike, why do you want to work for IBM? 
And here I'm fresh out of college. I pretty much thought, well, I've made it through these past days of interviews, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't prepare for that question. I uh, gave it a thought, right? And so in typical, you know, I, I didn't study enough for the test in college. I'm going to throw everything I think I know on the wall and hope something <laughs> sticks, right? Yeah. And I started saying, this is pretty much kind of where I was going. He said, well, Mr. Cowan, his name was George Cowan. Mr. Cowan, the reason I want to work for IBM is because just like your office, you're looking over Lake Michigan and downtown Chicago, IBM can see into all of these businesses and what their needs are and promises. And I, as I kept talking, and I'm not exaggerating any of this whatsoever, uh-huh. as I kept talking, now he was in his uh, early 60s, his face started turning bright red and his teeth, he was starting to grit his teeth like he couldn't believe nor stand what I kept saying. And he finally had had enough. He got out from behind his desk and he came over to the couch. I'm sitting down looking up at him and he grabbed my hand as if to shake my hand. So we're holding hands and he starts screaming in my face. And I'm not going to re- reenact it here, but he basically said, you're a liar. He said, oh. did, you go to the, do you go, did you go to the library and study IBM? Did you read our annual report? Do you know what industries we serve? Do you know what our revenue was? Do you know anything about IBM? Did you do any of that? And I said, no, sir. And he kept screaming at me while, while he's still holding my hand. And I thought in my head, I wasn't even listening to him. This was going in slow motion. I thought I've lost it. It's over. Back to construction, right? Oh my and while God. He, going in, he said, Mike, and this is what he did, Mike, don't ever lie to the customer or prospect because they will pick it up right away. Now go up there and welcome aboard to IBM. I came that close, Ken, to losing a job because I thought I was smarter and I could just wing my way through something. There was no preparation I had given it. Oh, my dear Lord, have mercy. IBM was such a professional company. I don't even want to say that IBM today is IBM of then. It was a different era. Sure. Uh, you know, blue suit, 15 pound black wingtip shoes, red tie, white shirt. I mean, it was known as the IBM way. And, and, and here's what they um, uh, taught the very first 15 minutes of sales school for the next six months. They, they, you wonder, where did they begin? What was the most important area that they were going to begin to uh, create a new uh, identity for us, a new persona, whatever, elevate us to uh, you know, a, a level of professionalism? They said, uh, and this is the exact word, so this is near verbatim. They said, you know, welcome to IBM. We're going to be with you for the next six months, training, blah, blah, blah. And they said, there's only two kinds of salespeople in the entire world. Uh, there's jackasses. This is exactly the word they use. There's jackasses. They can carry a heavy load, but you constantly have to kick their butt. None of you are jackasses. The other kind are the only kind we hire. Uh, wild stallions. You all are wild stallions. And he emphasized it. Now, I don't know about you, but but I would have never thought of myself as a wild stallion, but I pretty much can guarantee that most people, when they hear those two words, conjure up an image of determination and fierceness and power and, you know, uh, accomplishment, achievement, you know, purpose, um, you know. And so all of a sudden, in my own mind, I, be, I began to see myself as something I never would have taken myself to to see myself as, but they didn't stop there. They wanted to take us to even a higher aspirational level. So I hadn't even had a chance to embrace the fact that I was, you know, a wild stallion. They said, but by the time we're done with you in six months, you're no longer going to be a wild stallion. You're all going to be thoroughbred racehorses. Holy cow. Now I'm a Kentucky Derby, you know, runner, right? (laughs) But, but, But IBM knew that the most important thing to begin with for the rest of the six months and really the rest of our lives 
was how you saw yourself and how you see yourself is how you carry yourself and how you carry yourself is how other people see you and how other people see you determines their perception of you and their perception pretty much is equated to the reputation that we begin to create out there based on our behavior, attitude, actions, etc. So it was essential how we saw ourselves and to see ourselves as a, the best of the best professionals meant that we carried ourselves in that fashion. Wow. Above and beyond every you know, our competitors and everybody else, because it's all about distinguishing yourself. How do people remember you? Yeah. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, and, and I know we're going to we're going to get into it here in a few. But <clears throat> for a guy that co-created, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to use that, that co-created an entire industry um, like. You hold IBM in a very, I can like that, that none of that was fake. You meant everything, right? Oh, like, I love, I love that, IBM. And, right. Yeah. You hold them in this unbelievable high regard. And, and I, and you're making me think back to some of the, the, the training I went through and, and, and how it relates to where I am today. And it's, I'm sure you're, I know that you're making people because there's all kinds of comments Robert Wallace says he had both yellow and blue act. He said it was easy, easier to use and customize than most CRMs available today. Here, I'll pull it out for him. Oh, wow. That's incredible. He's got it right there. He's like, hang on. I still have a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. <laughs> so he'd be off your screen for a moment, though. Oh, you're fine. You're I've fine. got this packed in so tight, I've got to squeeze it out. Oh, that is so amazing. Bob Donnell is on here, by the way. My good buddy, Damien Boudreaux, is on here. There you go. That one. Oh, there it is. There it is. This was the first Windows version. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Incredible. So so now Damien said, say that again. I'm not sure which part. You said it, you dropped a lot of, of nuggets there. So, so, um, how long did you work for, um, IBM then? I worked for them for five years. Uh, okay. I thought I would be a lifer, but again, when I got hired by IBM and another reason they made it so difficult to even get into IBM was because once you were in, it was lifetime employment for an American yeah. company to offer lifetime employment was unheard of. Yeah. Uh, and so. You know, uh, and when I first got hired, of course, my aspirations were, well, hope, I hope someday I get to get to be a marketing manager, which was the title for the sales manager, and then get promoted from there to be a branch manager. Pretty much that's probably what I had, you know, hoped to achieve within IBM, which at that time was 400,000 global employees. You know, I, I think a key point of something that you said um, you know, I know that it was a lot of rigorous testing and work to, to even get the full-time position, but IBM, it sounds like they really, truly knew some basic fundamental human needs. And that was, they, they learned to, to lift up their employees, lift them up, make them feel like like you, went, you went from a wild stallion to a thoroughbred racehorse, right? And, no. and so you, you had this vision of yourself that they helped you create. Yeah, what, what I will say uh, about the sales training, which obviously carried on then as my career with IBM and obviously below, uh, beyond that, 
Yeah. Uh, they did not teach us techniques. I mean, they did teach us, you know, the, the five selling steps. We had to go through that because remember, we were um, graded on our performance. We had uh, a binder about this thick, um, uh, and it was called Prepare Industries, all fictitious people and situations, you know, the CEO, the data processing manager, the CFO, and their competitors and the nature of the industry back then, all sorts of things. And it was basically a case study of this fictitious company. And that's what we had to do our next performance on uh, that we were then ranked and graded by, right? Um, and so, but what I will say is this, Ken, and you basically alluded to it, but I'll use the word, uh, a different word. They taught us principles more importantly and more valuably in my life, certainly, than techniques. And it was many, many, many years later that I, I read Coincidentally, um, you know, in my public speaking, I pretty much uh, use it uh, most of the time now at the beginning, uh, a, a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And here's the quote. As to uh, methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who embraces principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who uses methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. I lived that. I was taught principles. Those principles, there were many more. That was just the first one. Yeah. I could spend four hours with you talking about the principles IBM taught us. Wow. Uh, that was the first one. That was the most important one. And, and those principles are how I've uh, you know, tried to live my life, not just business, but personal. And they have served me well. Now, I, I've, I have messed up. Right? I, I mean, I'm a human being. I've made mistakes. I, you know, I've done all that. But I, I try to obviously mitigate that. Uh, and I always go back to those principles uh, that, that IBM taught me. So, yes, IBM, for to my dying day, will forever have a near and dear spot in my heart for what they did to me. Damien Boudreaux said earlier, say that again. This is what he was talking about, your identity leading to oh. community perception. <clears throat> okay, so here's what I said. Uh, IBM taught us, you know, the most important thing, how you see yourself. So did I see myself as a branch manager? Well, that's only, you know, this high. Yeah. Did I see myself as, a, well, you know, we, we set these levels, but IBM said, no, 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 those aren't high enough. The, you've got to go to the infinite, you know, aspirational level, uh, you know. And so that's where they took us because they knew if we elevated our thinking and therefore, our actions to that level, we would behave differently. So here's this, basically what I said. The way you see yourself determines how you conduct yourself, and obviously with other people, right? Yeah. And, and in your own private moments, of course, uh, with integrity and honesty and all those things. But the way, but the, the way you see yourself is how others uh, see you because you're conducting yourself in a different, higher level manner, professionalism, let's call it that. Uh, how they perceive me basically becomes my reputation because it's how they then talk about me. Yeah. Hey, I, I met this guy, Mike Muni. Uh, I checked him out with some other people. He's got a great reputation. Everybody said he, you know, he's a man of his word. His handshake is his bond, whatever, whatever people would say uh, is how my, my reputation would spread out into the community. And, mm. and, you know, it's above me, below me, on either side of me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It surrounds me as it does everybody. We all right. have experienced, I'm sure, people saying, stay away from that person, stay away from that company, bad news, yep. lousy, well, that's a reputation. And yeah. you know, I, I even hate to say, I'll say it at this point, I'm so glad that ACT created a category called relationship management, but I, in some respects, I wish it was r rather called reputation management because 
again, I go back to how I see myself determines how I then treat others. And okay, I can collect all the data that these products collect, obviously. Yeah. But I'm really man. And, and I like to say this, uh, another reason I don't like relationship management a phrase, I know it's a good phrase, but the reason I think it's not high enough is because in truth be told, Ken, I cannot manage you. I can't right. manage, I can't manage my own kids. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I can't manage my, so what makes me think I can manage you? The only thing I can truly manage is me and how well I manage me determines how you see me. And then that gets wow. back to how you see me is how you talk about me. You know, Jeff Bezos, I don't know if he's the originator of this statement or not, but I'll, that's how, who I heard it from. Uh, he said, your brand, if you ask people, what's your brand? Well, I'm the co-creator of that. Well, great, but that's not really my brand. He said, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Think about that. How are people talking about you all wow. the time? What's out there about you? And of course, with social media, and, and people can go and find anything going back yeah. a long time now about everything we've said or done. Yeah. You better preserve your reputation because it is the only thing you can manage yourself. Yeah. And wow. IBM, like I'm saying, IBM back in an era when none of this to most people was even thought about, knew that how you saw yourself was the most important thing you could do for your life. That is unbelievably great great advice and, and it and i you know i've i've went i've gone to hire people i don't know if you've done this or not but i've gone to where i run an ad i get resumes or emails in and very first thing i do is go to facebook and 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 you know you see you see these you know they're hanging out on the back of a boat smoking a joint with a like dude i am not calling you sorry <laughs> Yeah. No offense. Hey, man, if you want to smoke weed, smoke weed. I'm just, I just can't have that in my company. Right. So, yeah. So yeah. People don't. The, think other, the other the other thing, though, Ken, you know, to that topic real quick. Obviously, I know the value of social media as yeah. you know, probably most people do, but everything has a dark side. And we know there is a serious dark side to social media. Oh, yeah. The problem. The thing I don't I, I kind of discount social media. Yes, I'm like you. I go to people's Facebook page. I went to yours when we first connected. Yeah. I went to your LinkedIn page. Yeah. Those are placeholders and people can say and present themselves in whatever way they want to be seen. Yep. And if, if I never meet you, that's all I have to go on or other people that may know you if I'm fortunate that, right. but the truth, the, the rubber meets the road when I finally do get to meet you and see you and assess you because every, yeah. everybody on this call is sizing me up. Yeah. If I, and if I could see them, I'd be sizing them up. I'm sizing you up, look at your face and, Right. You know, but we always unconsciously are assessing the other person. We're calculating, yep. is this person telling the truth? Do I detect some BS? Do I like right. them? Would I like to have a beer with them? All right. sorts of things are going through our head, right? Yeah. Well, um, that's why it's most important to really connect with people. And I am about con real connections, the meaningful yep. and effective ones, not the illusion of relationships, but the reality of them. Yeah. Just like Bob Donnell. Correct. Yeah. And Bob, you're good friend. If Bob, Bob, if you're on the call, I miss yeah. you, brother. Uh, I love you, and I wish I was live closer to you so I could be with you. <laughs> he, he's uh, he's here. He, hey, Bob, he, yeah. So, so, um, and by the way, thank you, Bob, for connecting us. Amen. So, um, so you worked at IBM for five years. Um, it sounds like you did. Pardon me. I was recruited away from them. Oh. Uh, that's why I left them. It's not that I didn't like them anymore. I, like I said, I thought I was going to stay there for life, but 
because of the IBM training and I had made it five years, the, the corporate world knew if you were an IBMer with the training uh, <laughs> yeah. or Xerox and you lasted five years as a sales guy, uh, yeah. we'd like to hire you. By the way, IBM told me, and again, this is $1975 on day one of sales school, that they were going to invest $75,000 in each of us over the next six months. I don't know what that would be today. 200,000, a lot, right? A lot. Um, and so the quality of my training itself became valuable to the outside world. And I was recruited away by 3M, another great company, yeah. uh, but not, nowhere near uh, the, the level of IBM. Uh, and I had a great wow. career with them, but I only last great career short one, 11 months. And the reason oh. I left them after 11 months uh, it was not because I didn't like them, but two friends of mine wanted to start a company and they asked me to join them. And I did. So it was my first entrepreneurial step into the, what is this thing called an entrepreneur? But I, I had the title VP of sales. There were just oh, three of us, right? I and, mean, but I had a big title, uh, yeah. but I had more, you know, more salary and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, it, that company failed after a year and I had to go back to the corporate world. Uh, what, what, year, what, what year was that? Uh, 19, well, about 1981, 82 era. So the PC is literally 81, 82. Yeah. It's coming around at that point for sure. The, uh, Apple came out in uh, 1975. The okay. PC, the original IBM PC came out in 1981. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, like I, I, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but my first computer was a, um, Commodore 64 C. I, I, you had to learn how to write basic, basic code and it, <laughs> yeah. you'd spend three days writing code. If this then go to, and, and just to get a little ball to blip around on the dang screen, backing yeah. it up to a cassette tape. You remember that stuff. I'm sure. Uh, well, probably, here's, a, here's a funny comment, Ken. So when the PC, you know, had probably been on the market for a year or so yeah. and here, you know, and obviously I'd worked for IBM uh, but I said to my friends, why would I ever need a PC? It's easier to just write my check on the checkbook. I, I mean, I, I kind of dissed the whole value of a PC. <laughs> in fact, in my IBM branch, you know, that skyscraper in downtown Chicago, yeah. no kidding. One day, a bunch of us sat around, a bunch of the sales guys and, and system engineers, and we were looking at the Sears Tower, as it was known back then, and we said, do you ever think that IBM would let people other than IBMers like us sell computers? And we all laughed at the thought, what? <laughs> a a non-IBMer selling computers? No way. Never going to happen. <laughs> That's so beneath us. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. I know it is so, funny. So you, so so you, what was the? So you went into business with a couple of other um, friends. You were the the global vice president of sales. <laughs> 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 yeah, we didn't sell. Yeah, we, what we just so you know, we sold uh, backup mainframe uh, protection. Think of okay. it as basically an effort to a subscription service. So if your mainframe broke down, and you were a union shop, let's say you were I don't know Philip Morris, General Motors, and yeah. and you had to have the checks in the union shop Friday at noon, and your computer broke down and print, didn't print those checks, that union was entitled to shut the line down. So oh. the whole concept was you need a backup mainframe subscribe to our backup mainframe so you have protection right and it was it ended up being a long sell cycle people were like yeah one of these days we'll get around to it it's not in yeah. our budget a, a disaster oh, i don't think we'll ever have a flood or tornado or anything yeah um and and so it, anyway we didn't even sell one subscription after a year and we had to oh shut my the god 
Yeah. Where did you get the money for that? Did did well, <laughs> VC? No, no, no. Here's how, here's what I'm so there, back then there were two companies that two corporations, uh, public companies uh, on the fortune list, Comdisco and SunGuard, uh -huh. and those two companies existed to have backup mainframe service to you know clients. Um, well, the Louis, the Louisville, Kentucky region, the Southern Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, over to you know Lexington. Anyway, that whole region for SunGuard uh, was a loss, and they wanted to get it off the books. And so the guy, the CEO of our little three-person company, that said, you know, I'd like you to join me, he negotiated a deal with SunGuard where they we could buy the company uh, in that region for one dollar, and and in exchange they would be able to take it off the book. So from an accounting standpoint, they didn't have to show it as a loss anymore. And right. they paid our salaries for one year. They said, we'll give you one year. We'll pay your salaries for a year. We'll continue to pay the, the lease on the IBM mainframe. We'll pay for the, you know, the office facility. And we'll e give each of you a company car for one oh my year. Gosh. Okay, so uh, do the best you can in a year because after that, it's over. Well, at the end of the year, we hadn't sold anything. So uh, day 366, we shut the doors. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so you went back, you said you went back into the corporate world from there. I can't even believe we've been on here already 41 minutes. That's insane. <laughs> so, so we haven't even gotten to, to the, the main part of the story. We better move. So, so you go back into corporate for, I, I assume some, uh, a handful of years and, and what, what happened from there? Uh, yeah, I was with Computer Associates. Uh, uh, they were selling a brand new uh, relational database product called CA Universe. It was about a hundred thousand dollar product, and yeah. they formed a brand new sales group across the country to sell that product. And I was the number one sales guy uh, at the end of the uh, both year one and year two. And Computer uh, Associates was a big company. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, but again, I go back to IBM and the value. It was always about connecting with people and how yeah. to how to become friends with them, not to treat them as a client, prospective client. That right, wasn't right. aspirational enough. In fact, IBM said to us, "What's your what's your motive when you go call on a prospect?" And of course, all of us young IBMers said, "Oh, to convert them to a customer." And they said, "Wrong. You're you mm. need to go in there with the mentality that you want to treat people as if they could become your friend, and and they in fact even already are their your friend right. now." Of course, they're not going to be thinking of you as a friend, but your attitude, your persona, your you know actions will come across more realistically, more authentically if you kind of go in there and treat them as a friend, get to know them. And so they taught us a lot of things about how to do that. Uh, and they said, the best thing you can do is when you leave that first meeting with a prospective customer is hopefully in their mind, they're going, I really like that person. I could see having a beer with them or whatever, right? Yeah. That was a good sign. That was job number one at IBM to get people to think of you as a prospective friend, which was based on how I treated them, right? That's awesome. Uh, and so, uh, okay, so anyway, uh, what happened, let's get to the IBM situation. So what happened yeah. is uh, my best friend and I, we were both in sales. He was a, a printer salesman in Chicago. We, yep. we ended up knowing each other because we moved into an apartment complex after college, two doors apart from each other. Both of us were married and so and beginning our careers. And so we had that in common, two sales guys. Uh, yeah. He worked for his wife's uncle, who was a printer owner uh, in Chicagoland. Uh, and I was obviously with IBM. So we had a best friendship. Fast forward the 10 years we and the PCs now in the world. We both said to each other often, wouldn't it be great to work together? I mean, we were really best friends, right? Wouldn't it be great yeah. to work together? Uh, and so we were always on the lookout for a reason 
to start a company. Well, that day came, if you remember, those of you on the line that are old enough to remember, in the early PC days, you had to go to a computer store uh, to buy a PC, business land, computer land, entree, yep. micro age, et cetera. Yeah. Well, he worked, he had now uh, worked for one of those and we saw an opportunity for the salespeople in those stores to ease their jobs and to help them competitively appear more um, professional. And so we created a product uh, that was a configurator. It was called Margin Maker. What it meant was you would come into the store as the prospect. I work for TI. I've got a team of 25 people. I need to buy 25 PCs and a few modems and a couple of these things called a laser printer. And I can only afford one, you know, powerful computer, this thing called a 286. You know, the rest just give me wow. some 8088 or whatever. The salesperson yeah. could go to the machine, configure it, and line item a discount, back solve a margin, but make sure that the quote that they were going to give that prospect was in the black not in the red because wow. salespeople are notorious for giving away everything, right? Yeah. And it would print it out and, and a salesperson could give it to the prospect and say, we'll back, we'll back this price for 30 days. Well, that person would probably go to the competitor and that salesperson there would say, oh, that's probably going to be, I don't know, $50,000. Well, which one made that customer prospect look more, uh, or excuse me, which one made the PC salesperson look more professional? The one with the document and backing the price, or the one that said, "Ah, it's probably fifty thousand." Yeah, the, that uh, was our that was our mentality, right? So yeah. anyway, we created that product. Uh, make a long story short, and there's much more to it, unfortunately, that I have time to tell. But we raised a hundred thousand dollars from an angel out of Boston for seven percent of the company. Uh, Eighty-five thousand dollars later, having spent that much and only fifteen thousand left, uh, Pat and I said to each other, literally. Uh, uh, this dog ain't gonna hunt. It's over. What do we wow. do? Well, one of the principles IBM taught me, what, regardless of the size of the corporation, always call at the CEO level. The bigger the company, you might get delegated down, but the people you're delegated down to will know you're delegated down, but always start at the top. Always at the CEO. Yeah. So one of the uh, uh, franchise owners in, the, in America, uh, Compu Shop, was headquartered right here in a suburb of Dallas, 54 stores. That would have been a big sale to us. Yeah. I, I, I uh, earned my way in to meet him uh, for the first call. He did delegate me down to purchasing department to test it. He liked the concept. But, uh, but anyway, I established a relationship with him. That's essential in the invention of apps. And that's yeah. why I'm telling you the story. Okay. Why? Here's why. When, when Pat and I said to each other, this dog ain't going to hunt, we only have $15,000 left, and the angel's coming down from Boston in about three weeks. <laughs> all, we, all we know to do is to give them the $15,000 we have left. Well, um, that week's issue, back then, there was a weekly uh, newspaper called, um, uh, what was it called, CompU, I, I forget, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I, I have a question, and, and yeah. you don't have to... Rush. If we go an hour and 50, I don't care. We, we can go however long it takes. So I, I, but I have a question because when you told me, cause you told me this story on our first phone call and, and you know, my question is what was going on in, because you know, I think everybody's been there and especially right now, People are freaking out like, oh, dear God, what am I going to do? You know, there's there's servers in restaurants that are not making a single penny that live night to night from tip to tip. Yeah. And, and so so, you know, people are going, OK, you know, 
this is awesome, Mr. IBM, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, but what, how does it work for me? What was going on in your head? Were you thinking, uh, you know, we're giving back the 15,000 to our investor. We're going to have a tarnished reputation for blowing his 85,000. And I'm going to have to go work on Skyrise buildings again in the, in the construction industry because IBM ain't going to hire me back. Right. Is that, is, are those some of the thoughts going through your head, the, the self-doubt? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, what, what the, the fun of raising money and kind of really having our own business that we owned, right. Yeah. Uh, was exhilarating. I mean, but it was also scary and risky at the same time, but, yeah. but we were up to the challenge. We were willing to take that risk, which is a qualification to be an entrepreneur. Right. Yeah. Uh, but as the, 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 um, doom and gloom began to appear on the horizon, yeah, we had fears and doubts. And the only option we had left in our minds was give the 15,000 we have left and go back to the corporate world. Now, having my IBM credentials, I wasn't really concerned about not being able to find a job. I, you know, right. I, I mean, but uh, I didn't have a lot of money or, you know, anything. I didn't have this big buffer. I had nothing. It was going to mean another disruption to me and now a family uh, of three kids, my wife and three kids, right, that I was responsible yeah. for. All right. So going back to that CEO, uh, in that week's issue uh, of this weekly newspaper, they had their annual edition of the top 25 most influential peoples in the entire PC industry. Bill Gates was one of them. But so was this CEO. His name is John Pertel. Here's John Pertel. I know him. I've established a connection with him. He, wow. he kind of has taken a liking to me. I called him up and I said, John, he let me call him John at this point. John, we're in trouble. Can we come and talk to you? We need some advice. We don't know what to do. And he said, sure, come on. So we laid the whole story out, why it failed, everything. Yeah. Uh, and this is what, so he's listening. You know, he's a CEO, right? He's older than us. He's just kind of listening to two of us. Yeah. And this is what he said, Ken. He, when we were all done, he said, you know what? You two guys are smart guys. Next week is July 4th. This is 1986. Next week is July 4th. Why don't you take a four-hour brainstorm session from 8 until noon and see if you can come up with another idea before you throw in the towel? Well, you know, we could afford coffee and toast, so we took his advice, right? And Pat and I literally were in a booth at a Holiday Inn restaurant south of DFW Airport, and we said to each other with pencil and paper, blank paper, we literally said to each other, we are going to sit here for four hours come hell or high water and see if we can come up with another idea. Now, in that era, as was the case for most people, everybody was using an organizer. Daytimer was the prominent one. Pat and I always described ourselves as power daytime users. And so we, Pat and I set a couple of criteria to begin our four hours. Number one, whatever we might come up with had to have what we coined uh, as useful use. It had to truly be useful. It couldn't be just fluff to add it in and hope that somebody liked it. Uh, we wanted to keep it, you know, tight and powerful. So it had to have useful use, a new concept we coined. Uh, <laughs> we gave each other, think about this, two sales guys. You know, he didn't know any more than I knew, and I didn't know any more than he knew. At least that's how we treated each other, right. even though we were best friends, right? So we set a guideline, and we said, look, each of us is probably going to come up with some ideas that the other one might not like. And so if that's the case, if the other person says, I veto that idea, the other person then who had the idea immediately has to stop. Don't have your feelings hurt. Don't try to continue to persuade. Just stop. That's it. It's over. Let's get on to the next idea. Right? And so this, we gave each this, other this, this, sorry, th this is during your four hour coffee Correct. meeting. This is in the first 15 minutes. This right. is uh, just the, the guide, the guardrails that we set up for ourselves yeah. to begin this effort. Uh, right. I love and it. So, 
then we began to, to get onto it. And, and here's the last thing we said. And we said, you know, we could never use Margin Maker. We didn't work in a PC store. We knew the value of it for salespeople, but we couldn't use it. We have a blank sheet of paper. Why don't we see if we can come up with an idea that uh, something that we could use ourselves too? So what is it that we wish existed that doesn't, that we think would help us? Wow. And we literally, you know, kind of, I don't remember if it happened immediately, but it happened obviously very quickly in this comment. We looked at our day timers and we said, you know what, that's a great organizer, but it's got a lot of weaknesses. Number one, it's activity focused. But all those activities, even if you take great notes, are spread over a lot of different journals. That's, you, can't, you can't pull them all together and get the big picture. Number two, it's, about, it's not about uh, people, uh, even though all those activities are with and for people. It's not about people. Why don't we turn it on its head, turn it around to the other side, if you will, and focus on the relationship and then attach everything that goes along with that relationship in a profile, right? And, we, wow. and you can imagine Pat and I both going, wow, that makes sense. That would be cool. I wish everything was together. And now it could be on a PC in this brand new thing on the market called the laptop that was emerging. They still stunk, but they were emerging. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, we, we then, uh, set out for the rest of the time. We knew we were onto something and here, I'm going to pull it out for you. Here is the original napkin of our notes from that four hour oh. breakfast on July 4th, 1986. Oh and, my dear God. Are you yeah, kidding me? Yeah. And then, what? uh, and so actually, you know, I've got a whole file. So for the, here's what we did. I codenamed it coming from IBM acronym rich company. I codenamed it at that breakfast, YES, which was an acronym that stood for YES, everybody sells. I'm, don't tell me you're not a salesperson. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a CPA. I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Do you have competition? Is there another engineer, CPA, right. lawyer? Well, yes. Well, then sell me why you should be my lawyer, right? right. Everybody right. sells. So it, it, we, we architected. Here's the architecture. I mean, that's a lot, I'm, I'm, but... But these are the original architecture documents that Pat and I worked on over the next three weeks. To is, that is that graph paper? Uh, no, it's computer uh, computer programming paper. We actually went oh, to the oh, University okay. of Dallas, uh, wow. their computer department, and we stole these. We just oh walked in these so, so that we could begin to architect. Yes, right. And so oh we are. Oh my God! Wow. <laughs> we began to architect. Yeah. So here. Um, well, the next thing that we put together, I taped together four pieces of graph paper. <laughs> this is the decision tree. This is the site plan, as you would oh, call it today. Dear right? Lord. Yeah. And then that led to the fuller architecture. But we, we knew we were onto something when we left that breakfast, but we were also preparing for the angel to come down in three weeks who thought everything was fine. And we wanted to have at least a plan B to tell him about, Right. <laughs> And so he, he, he didn't even know that 85 grand of his money was nope. gone. And <laughs> no, he thought everything was fine. Yeah, here's oh, here's uh, so here's screen one. This is the here's screen one of uh, first version wow. 1.0 docs. Here's screen two, uh, and here's it had an expense module. Here's screen three. Uh, so these are the, these are the original documents right here. Wow. Anyway, uh, so so he came down. We picked him up at the airport. Uh, it was near lunchtime. We went to lunch, you know, small talk. And his name was John McNear. Go ahead. I have one question. It's a simple one. How old were you guys? Uh, I was 35 years old. You were, and he was about the same age? About 30, 34. Okay. 35, 34, you'd blown through 
$85,000 of your investor's money, had 15 grand left. Yeah. And, and <laughs> not enough to survive any longer. Yeah. And I, you know, okay. So, so I, let's make one point really, really clear. And I, I, I love the rest of this story, by the way. Um, you, it's the advice that the CEO gave you that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. It's the advice that CEO gave you saying, Hey, you guys are smart guys, sit down and come up with an idea and make this don't, work. Well, basically I would slant it a little bit differently. He said, don't give up basically. Come on yeah. guys, smart. don't give up. Yeah. Right? Wow. Yeah. You could give the 15,000 back and maybe, maybe that's what will happen, but don't give up. I love so it. We, we just allowed that in, you know, he, he, here's another example of him taking us to a higher level in our thinking, our attitude, yeah. which determined then our willingness to persevere through a very bleak period at this point. Right. Yeah. So we humbled ourselves by going to him, et cetera. I mean, you know, there's a lot more. So John Pertel, the CEO was the pivot point of saying, you two guys are smart guys. Don't give up. The rest, was up, to, the rest was up to us. Okay. So we took that advice. So, so here's what happened. So at, at yeah. the lunch with John McNair, the angel, we finally said, John, we've got bad news for you and we've got good news. Unfortunately, he was a very patient man. Thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, because we told them why Margin Maker was dead. Uh, we, why we tried everything. There was no hope for it to succeed. Nothing. And, and, we, and we even said to him, we're prepared to give the 15000 we have left back to you if, if that's what you want. And he said, well, what's, uh, what's the other idea? Uh, what's the good news? And so we said, well, we came up with this idea. We're, we're codenaming it. Yes. It's uh, a kind of a relationship manager concept and we showed them all these documents so and obviously we were talking about it because pat and i had three weeks to uh, to help each other articulate the value of this and who could benefit from it and why and all that stuff yeah. and and you can you, you're getting a little bit of taste of the passion we were also portraying right yeah right okay so we're, we're finally done telling him about yes and, and it's time to shut up now mind you pat and i had no idea that what he was about to say would it would be an option so we were unprepared for what he was about to say. So here's what he said. This is awesome. Yeah, he looked at Pat and me. I mean, we're sitting across from him at the lunch table. He said, I did not invest in Margin Maker. I invested in the two of you guys. And I actually like this idea better than Margin Maker. Do you need any more money? I mean, it's like, whoa, right? We totally <laughs> didn't expect that to be an option. We thought he'd be upset. Yes, give me my money back. Let me cut my losses, right? And, right. and we said, yes. And he said, how much, how much? Right? How much? Now we had asked for a hundred thousand before, so we thought. <laughs> now Pat and I were kind of, you know, uh, telepathic at this point. Which like we said, well, let's let's agree on the price here. At that moment, when he said how much, Pat and I both said simultaneously fifty thousand dollars. We didn't oh know if he would God. say that. He literally that was opened, unplanned. Uh, totally unplanned. He literally oh opened up his sport coat, took out his checkbook, and right there at the lunch table, wrote us a fifty thousand dollar check and said. Good luck, guys. I really like this idea better. So wow. we had a little bit of breathing room. So here's what I did. I then called John Pertel, probably, I don't know, in another day or two, doesn't matter, uh, soon after this, this lunch. Uh, and I said, John, we got to come and talk to you. We, we need to bring you up to date. So we went to see John Pertel at his office. And we said, John, we took your advice. We had a July 4th breakfast. We came up with an idea. It's codenamed Yes. We showed them all the documents. We told them who could use it, et cetera. We said the angel loved it so much, he wrote us a $50,000 check. Can you believe that? And here's what John Pertel said. He said, you know what? 
I like that idea too. As a matter of fact, I know two other guys that might like to hear this story, uh, consider it as an investment. Let me pull together a, a meeting at my home later in the week, in the evening, and you two guys come and do your pitch. He pulled together a meeting with uh, those three, him and the two other guys. Pat and I went and we did our pitch and those three guys wrote us $400,000 in checks and we were on our way. And literally nine months later, nearly to the day. So there's July 4th, 86 is when it was conceived. April 1st, which is coming up quick. Act is about ready to celebrate its 33rd birthday on the market. April 1st, 1987, Act was launched on the market. And, you know, uh, so that's basically the Act story. It was a Hail Mary desperation pass, but we humbled ourselves. We sought advice. We took the advice. We didn't give up. You know, all of those elements of just trying to survive. Uh, we had no, like I said at the beginning, Ken, we had no concept of creating an industry or 33 years later. Are you kidding? We were just hoping to stay in business because we enjoyed working together so much. Oh my God. So uh, I, I, I could, I could literally rapid fire a million questions, but I, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I guess, you know, the, 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 the day that the angel, well, you know, funny, one of my first thoughts is, okay, you're ready to just call it quits, give him back his 15 grand and, and move on, go find another job. Um, and, and it went way opposite of that. He writes you another check for $50,000 more. So now you're 65,000 flush. <laughs> and, and did you guys go out and celebrate that night? Like, wow, I can't believe we still are here. <laughs> you know, I, obviously time eludes me. I, I, I we probably did. Yeah. We we probably went though to something maybe just above a McDonald's. I mean, we were very frugal. Uh, we knew the value of money and how hard yeah. it, uh, it was to raise it, and how careful yeah. it was, uh, how easy it was to spend it. Uh, but I'm, but I'm sure we celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and and then four hundred thousand dollars more. And and I, I want to you. It doesn't sound like either of you were computer programmers in any way. Uh, I mean, I did learn to program at IBM. I had to. I learned basic APL, uh, yeah. RPG2, uh, COBOL, uh, only only to become familiar with it enough. I, I actually yeah. did have to write a, an APL routine uh, to win a client. I was trying to sell Holiday Inn Reservation Systems, the mainframe, and one of the tests for them to see if uh, it was going to be valuable to them was, well, write us a program that does something that we need. Well, obviously I discovered what some of their needs were and I did write a routine in APL, uh, yeah. which stands for a programming language. I even met the inventor of APL um, who came and spoke to our office one night, a Harvard professor. Uh, anyway, uh, so I did some programming, but no, Pat and I were not programmers. We think of us as system architects. Right. Uh, and we knew, we knew how to architect the product, what it could do, but we hired two guys <laughs> Uh, we actually hired them in the margin maker era. And we, when we had this hundred thousand dollars, yeah. uh, Randy, Randy, uh, uh, Haven and John Maurer, both of them. I was just with both of them a couple of weeks ago. They still live here in the, uh, DFW area. Uh, yeah. although Randy recently just, I'm sorry, moved to Austin area, but, um, we, Randy was the apartment maintenance manager, but he took, he was a nerd as we would call it today. And he took a liking to this PC and he learned some programming. Wow. D which was the, and then John Maurer was a friend of his. And these were two young guys 
John Maurer lost his uh, right leg below the knee from a motorcycle accident and literally walked on a wooden leg. No exaggeration, wow. right? So the four of us were a scrappy looking uh, group of guys, right? Nobody would pay attention to either any of us, right? But it was the four of us together. Well, make a long story short, we came back to them after this July 4th breakfast and we told them about, yes, and that they said, well, you, you and Pat need to, you know, uh, design it and draw it up and architect and we can then program it, right? So their first iteration of showing us some of their accomplishment in D-Base uh, on the screen, uh, Pat and I were standing there, I'll never forget, for those of you uh, that remember the week at a glance uh, on, and yeah. the to-do list, on, uh, okay, on this screen, and it was an 8088, an AT&T 8088 computer, yeah. I still have a picture of it. The screen painted itself like, ta-da, 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 and Pat and I looked at each other, we're standing behind Randy and John over the shoulders, we looked at each other and we said, this ain't gonna make it. It's too slow. Nobody's gonna accept it. Yeah. We literally said to Randy and John, do you guys know C? And they said, no. And we said, can you learn C? And they said, yeah. And so they on themselves learned C, I mean, rapid fashion learned C and programmed ACT, still known as YES at that time, programmed it in C so it could be proprietary and we weren't reliant on the D-based platform at that wow. time. Wow. Yeah. So so oh, you said he was one of them was the apartment main love the apartment complex you guys lived in? No, he was he, was, he met it, no. He was in another he worked in the church that we went to. He oh. was the manager, the maintenance manager, you know, changing oh. light bulbs, fixing the plumbing yeah. at an apartment complex in town here. That's what he oh did for God. a living. Wow. <laughs> That is unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. So so it's almost like the universe was conspiring for you to make this happen. Uh, you know, you don't you don't look at it at, at, that way at that time. But right. You know, look at the laughter. But you think, you know, we, we did the impossible. We were ordinary people that just did something extraordinary, but we didn't even know how extraordinary we were doing it at the time. But but we were we had something in us. You know, I, I believe to this day, Ken, people have raw material in them that is there. They just haven't gone down deep enough in the reservoir of their creativity and sense of surviving and creating, right? That everybody has the ability to create something, right? A better cookie. Look at Mrs. Fields cookies. I made a yeah. business out of it for Pete's sake, right? Yeah. Think yeah. of any business. Somebody thought of it. You know, yeah. the Wright brothers, two bicycle, uh, you know, uh, store owners. Yeah. What did they know about flying, right? <laughs> People, if you go to a higher aspirational level, yeah, you have no idea where that could take you, where you could fly to, not, no pun intended, where you could yeah. fly in, and, and discover from a different horizon your abilities that wow. you do have. It's they're raw, they, you know, they're, they're untested, but they're there. And if I can do it, you know, the way that I look at ACT, there's a saying, success should be a springboard and not a hammock. I'm mm. proud of ACT. I'm very proud of ACT. Obviously, why wouldn't I be? It was, it was so much of my life and it changed my life. To this right. day, I'm a beneficiary of ACT, right? In so many wow. ways. Being a, a podcast guest with you is partly because of ACT, right? Yeah. Wow. Uh, you never know what things can lead to. But uh, my attitude is success sh uh, should be a springboard and not a hammock. So the way I look at myself it, in one way, I have many ways I look at myself, but <laughs> one of them is if I can do that, what more is still in me? What more can I still do? I want to, I want to achieve more. I want to accomplish more. Right. Wow. And, and so that spirit of doing something meaningful, making an impact, making a difference, even if it's just for your own self-esteem. Right. Just for you. Right. I tried. 
God bless people that try. Just yeah. for trying, I, I applaud people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one question, I'm, I'm curious. Um, it started out as Yes, um, which was a great band, by the way. Uh, but but so it started out as, as Yes, um, and it ended up becoming Act. Why? What was what was the catalyst for that? Why did it? Good question. I, again, and, and, and to what I just said about going deep inside of you and discovering more creativity. Yeah. So it was now about, uh, best I can recollect, about three months or so before ACT was going to, or YES, as we still called it, was going to be released uh, uh, on the market. And I was beginning to spend a lot of time up in uh, Manhattan and San Francisco and L.A., partly because that's where a lot of the media was and the wholesale distributors. Okay. You know, Soft Cell, Ingram, et cetera, right? And, and, and lining up with them, showing them this product in, in test form still, uh, but to, to um, uh, get them interested, uh, you know, excited about this new product and, and to secure them as a wholesale distributor. Anyway, uh, so it's a lot of time in Manhattan and Manhattan is a lot of corporations, right? So uh, I was with the CEO who I had, uh, I called up from reading about him in the newspaper, computer newspaper one week, his whole company sold nothing but laptops. Now, another reason that ACT did succeed, in my opinion, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but another yeah. one is the wave of this brand new thing called a laptop. They were expensive. They were lousy. Some of yeah. them didn't even have a hard drive, nothing. They had a, a diskette drive, three and a half inch diskette drive. That was it, right? Yeah. But you knew, you knew mobility was heading, uh, was going to grow bigger and more people were going to carry these things around. And Pat and I literally said, you know, most people would not be able to justify buying a laptop because they need to do a spreadsheet. How many right. people do spreadsheets? How many people do word processing? But how many people wanted their Rolodex or whatever, everything they knew about everybody with them 24 seven and uh, on demand, instant recall, photographic memory, uh, executive assistant, if you want that. That's what right. this was. Okay. So uh, anyway, we were at lunch. And this is many times after I had met with him and you know, talked to some of the clients. Uh, showing him this future product. He said to me at lunchtime before I was, this is a Friday afternoon, I was getting ready to fly back to DFW, three and a half hour flight. He said, so Mike, you're telling me that this product's going to be ready for release in like two, three months. What's its name going to be? Is <laughs> it going to continue to be yes? And I said, no. And he said, well, you better come up with a name because you're running out of time. You got to get brochures made and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. That comment I thought to myself, I, I went to LaGuardia Airport. I got on the plane. I said, you know what? In, in my quietness, sitting in my seat, economy, right? Uh, I've got three and a half hours. I could read a book or go to sleep, but I'm going to see if I can come up with a name. And if I can't, nobody will know that I tried. But if I can, wow, maybe I can come up with a name. Now, Pat and I investigated some firms or local area back then. There was no internet that could come up with a name. And one company that we did like said, we can come up with a name. You might not like it, but our fee is $20,000. Well, we don't want to spend $20,000 yet. We may have to, but man, they're not going to do it today. So part of it was to avoid spending $20,000 with no guarantee. Right. So I said to my, I set three criteria for myself. I'm going to try to come up with a name and I want it to start with an A. So if we're create competition, it's going to be first in the list of, of competitive products. Yeah. Uh, number two. I'd like it to uh, be a one-syllable word, if possible. It's easy to remember a one-syllable word. And number three, this, these are my three criteria, I'd like it to be playful. I'd like it to have some playfulness, some mischievousness to it, yeah. uh, some fun, but some do something. And so 
the the main on the main menu of yes uh, was one uh, menu item. The main one actually uh, was the word action, and from that uh, menu had many drop downs. You know, write a letter, et cetera. But I well, there's my A because I was trying to take a word that I could then take the first letter from, concatenate it to the other first letters to make a word that really was an acronym. So there's wow. my A. Okay, let's go down the letter B, the uh, the B's in the alphabet. I couldn't come up with a B word to uh, that would a be added to the A to create a one syllable word. Okay, yeah. let's go to the C's. Well, and I, this is where I got to, Ken. I said, what does action help me to do? I know this is eventually what I started to think. It helps me to control everything. My relationships, my things. There it is. Yeah. A C T activity control. Now, uh, so the CT came from control. Yeah. So my wife picked me up at the airport and I told her this whole story. I'm excited. I came up with the name. Gosh, you're not going to believe it. And she's, she said to me, no, you should have a word for each letter. Why don't you call it activity control technology? Oh my it, dear Lord. There was still ACT with the exclamation mark uh, for the emphasis because you can't um, copyright a, a, a public domain word. The, the exclamation mark not only gave it emphasis, do something to the user, but wow. we could copyright it. And so here I am, a finance degree, you know, uh, what do I, a sales guy, what do I know? I don't have a marketing degree. And I right. came up with the name Mac because I was challenged to see if I could. And that's how it was born. And your wife, your wife, like put the, the, the topping on the, that is incredible, man. Yeah. It's always the wife, my wife, I, I, when I said I wanted to do this show, I said, I'm going to call it have a, have a, or get unstuck or something like that. And she goes, your last name is walls. Why don't you call it breakthrough walls? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, Ken, I didn't, I, I mean, obviously whatever questions you want, I'm happy to yeah. answer or yeah. any of the, the viewers or listeners, but I do want to say this because I, I, I uh, you know, professional speaking, I always try to present this in a balanced fashion. And so, so far it's kind of been all the fun and glory and glamour. Yeah. And, and yeah. again, I, I'm very proud of it, but uh, I also paid a high price for success. Yeah, I have learned in my life that there's always a companion, you know, love, hate, success, failure. I mean, act as a success because margin maker failed, right? Yeah. Things go together and they're inseparable. A blessing can be a curse. And a curse can turn out to be a blessing. And ACT also fulfills what I just said. It ACT became a curse to me, but it also became a blessing to me. So, so, so far you've heard the initial blessing part. Let me yeah. tell you some of the curse, just to be authentic with everybody. Sure. ACT was so successful on a global scale. I mean, I was traveling the world. I've been to 27 countries. I was the keynote speaker at major corporate events association events everywhere in the world. I, New Zealand, Singapore, Germany, it didn't matter, uh, Paris, England, you know, whatever, uh, obviously here in America. Uh, so this attention on me was uh, indescribable. I mean, it's talk about walking on the red carpet. For, you know, most of us are not destined to be celebrities as we use celebrities, you know, great actors and actresses, whatever. Um, I had a taste of what it's like to be a celebrity. I mean, and, and it's a fun life, uh, the way you're treated and doors opening up, et cetera, et cetera. But, it, but I allowed it to, to throw off my balance. It became my mistress. I, I couldn't go to bed without thinking about it. I woke up thinking about it. I couldn't wait for the weekend to be over so I could get back to work. I loved anything and everything else. I say that to say, I could go into a lot more detail than that, but I'll say, I told you enough to say, 
three years after ACT was released on the market. And I was really home because I was the co-inventor. People didn't want to talk to our now VP of sales as our company was growing globally, uh, offices in Europe, et cetera. Right. They wanted to talk to me because it was, you know, I'm one of the two guys that invented it. Pat didn't like to travel. And because of my IBM training, I, I by default was the, the face of ACT, all the user groups across the country, whatever. Yeah. I was never home. Make a long story short, uh, I lost a 19-year marriage and three wow. kids, three beautiful kids, two boys and a girl. Wow. So the success of ACT cost me what was otherwise a marriage. And I was out there doing this for my family. This was like, this could be the one time in my life that we could have some financial independence. How many people get that option, right? Right. And so my motive was good. My integrity was good. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I was always a faithful husband. I mean, I'm not one of those kind of guys and never have been, never will be. But even though my motives were correct, I lost balance with um, my wife. So here ACT is all about relationships, right? Meaningful, effective relationships. And I lose what most people would consider the most valuable one that they have. I let ACT become my mistress. Number two, that was one price paid. Number two, Pat and I are the parents of, of ACT, right? Yeah. Parents don't always agree on how to raise the kid. And as the success of ACT was so overwhelming, we began to have differences of each other's opinions, et cetera. And we got to where we lost our best friendship. So here, I lost the two most important friendships or uh, relationships that most people would qualify having, spouse and your best friend, right? Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then to make matters worse, many, a few years, three years later when we sold ACT, uh, uh, Pat and I were fired, uh, from Symantec and now act was, I was stripped of my identity. I had nothing, nothing. I had no, who am I? What am I? And I was lost. I don't mean I had to go on drugs or see a therapist. I mean, but it was like in my mind, my whole world was empty and I was lost and I didn't know what to do. And it, and it took me two years to discover uh, really what I was uh, to find what I call my authentic soul. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I so, paid a high price. So, so when people say, Oh, you know, you're great. You're committed to act and black, you know, but thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yes. But, yeah. but they, we have a tendency to look at people and what I call a gross success standpoint, yeah. I net out, I net out the price I paid and I look at myself differently than people look at me as, um, in a net success. Yeah. I look at it from the real, the real level of what it took to get there, but the, what, I, what I had to pay in order for that to happen. Yeah. And so, so uh, the blessing curse and then the curse becoming a blessing because I still had my act responsibilities, even though I'd lost my best friendship and, and my, my marriage, uh, because of my act responsibilities for those remaining three years, uh, it gave me a reason to wake up every morning and to go out in the world and just kind of, learn to deal with things that I had to come to grips with in my life. So it saved me, even though it destroyed me in the beginning, it kind of saved me in the back end of it. Wow, man. That's, um, there's some powerful lessons right there. Um, we do have one question here and, and we're at an hour and 19 minutes. I can't even believe it. That went so fast. Um, first, like, I want to say thank you for being on here, man, you are, you're an amazing human. I, I mean, and, and I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not trying to put you up. I know you don't like that or, but I, I I'm talking about just your, your authenticity, right? Like you're just real and you did like, let, let's, uh, I don't know. Let's take a look at the simple fact that 
I don't know, a little multi-billion dollar company called Salesforce wouldn't exist. Well, maybe they would, but like you kind of were the, you were the pioneer. We were the catalyst. Yeah. The pioneer, the catalyst. You guys were the pioneers. So Jeffrey Wolf says, can you see the question on the screen? How, how did your thinking about your leadership role change as the company progressed from that four hours brainstorming session to a large, yeah, that's a great, that's a, that's a great question. Actually. Did, did you, did you feel, um, I mean, especially look, it's one thing to have 15,000 and then 65,000, but then all of a sudden you got $465,000 in capital to build a company that makes a massive difference. I mean, that's, that's a large difference. Did you feel a, 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 a sense of, of owning a leadership role all of a sudden in this? Was it a, was there a, like a light switch kind of moment? Well, I, I, I uh, thanks for the question, Jeffrey. And I hope I'm interpreting it uh, correctly that you're asking me myself as an individual, not the company or the fact that we created a category that ACT was the leader in. So if that is right. the correct uh, uh, focus of your question, uh, you know, that, that's a good question. I, I, and I'm going to just try to take myself back, you know, in, in all the images of that, that era in my mind and everything I did. Obviously, it was just Pat and me and Randy and John. And, and so now we had to start hiring people. So, you know, the, I, I had never hired anybody anymore. So right. that was kind of the first step. It's almost like becoming a parent. I maybe the best analogy I can give you is, you know, we all get to be adults. You know, we 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 have kids, especially the first one, right? Uh, nobody really taught us other yeah. than the model of our parents on what parents did. Right. But, but we're not trained or taught or even prepared to become a parent. But as that child grows, you also grow. You you nurture it, but you learn from it as well. And, and it's very similar with the ACT era. That the, the company name was called Contact Software International. By the way, one of the uh, Trout and Reese, we, we spent the day with them, and they said, whoever thought of the name ACT uh, is brilliant because you guys have created a category called Contact Management, and all your competitors are going to have to say that they're in a Contact Management era uh, <laughs> category. They're going to have to mention your name. But anyway... Uh, you kind of, the, the growth and, and the uh, responsibility and the opportunity all gets kind of mingled. It's like a cornucopia of stuff happening. I, I mean, they were fabulous days. I mean, uh, oh my gosh, uh, that's why it seduced me. Uh, yeah. Seriously, it was just so exciting. And we could we could feel and see and taste the growth. People were loving ACT, especially the early adopters. And the, I mean, here's an article written four months after ACT came on the market, maybe or six months in PC Magazine, uh, the, the premier magazine, a two-page article that we made reprints of called What Qualifies as Great Software by wow. Jim Seymour. And it was all about this new product called ACT and how it's going to change the world, right? So you, we, we had these uh, evidences, if you will, of accomplishment of, wow, we're touching people's lives. We're touching their hearts, right? And which is something I've always wanted to do, and I will to my dying day. I, I like to touch people's hearts. If you touch their hearts, you've really connected, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we kept hiring more people. Then we expanded internationally. And, and I had to hire, uh, you know, people in our, our first office was in uh, Windsor outside of London. Uh, so I had British people. Then I, I hired, opened up a German office. Now I had Germans. I mean, I was getting ready to open up our Paris office. I was, I was meeting these different cultures and I had to learn to adapt because of my traveling uh, around the world. 
uh, and all these people in the early days were buying the um, what I call today the American version of ACT. There was only one version of ACT, American. Not that it was called American, but it was American English. Yeah. So you go to London, and then you go to Euro Europe is different than uh, England because uh, in Europe, the postal code comes before the city name. So let's say it'd be 1234 Munich, right? Yeah. Germany, yeah. but in London, it's, you know, anyway, everything is different. So I ended up learning and then adapting. We actually ended up with five versions of ACT, uh, US, Canadian, European, uh, uh, UK, and Australasian. And so uh, everything, every day was a learning experience and I adapted to it, but I was open-minded, I was excited. You, 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 it, things that we learned, we reflected back in the product and the company and everything uh, to continue to make that one-to-one -one connection with people uh, in the world. And so I grew because of ACT. I was given opportunities to be uh, involved in things that I never would have been involved in, in IBM probably, you know, bureaucracy. Yeah. And entrepreneurship is not about bureaucracy, although it gets to be that as the company yeah. grows, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I hope that answers your question, Jeff. It was, I, I saw it as I was not prepared, but somebody has to do it. And I have the authority to do things and I need to do it. We've got to make a decision. What's the best way to do it? You know, you talk to your people and you go out there and you make it happen. Here's, here's probably, and we'll, we'll finish up with this and, and to touch on, I, I, I can remember, you know, both of my daughters, I, I, my, mine are still young, 14 and nine. Um, but you know, I, I, I remember leaving the hospital thinking, are you sure <laughs> like you want us to take this little life with us? Like what, what do we do with it? Like, so, so this is probably the most, I, I think this is, I, I'm, I can't wait to hear your answer on this. And that's this question <laughs> right here. Who are you now? Who are you, you today? Wow. That's a good question. Damien. <laughs> Damien, <laughs> Damien Boudreau is a, uh, he's a thought leader, global thought leader. He's a, you should know him. He's a good dude. Um, but well, Damien, Damien, let's connect. Damien, I'd love to yeah. connect with you then. Yeah. 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 He's a great guy. Um, okay. So you want me to go ahead? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to say Damien's one of my mentors. So I, 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 the guy is an amazing guy. So who are you now? Uh, okay, I'm going to answer your question this way. I've got to tell a little bit of a story. I'm full of stories, obviously. Uh, I love it. Okay. Uh, so when Pat and I were you know, dismissed from Symantec and now I had lost my entire identity, I didn't know who I was. I said that it took me two years. Well, I, I'm Mike Muni. That's who I am. I'm Mike Muni, born and raised in Chicago, went to IBM, started. Okay, that's who I am. But that's, I know who I am. Uh, I know why I am. Well, I'm, I guess we're all in the quest for why was I created, right? And, <laughs> yeah. but, but I know, but I know why I am. I'm, I'm here to touch people's hearts. The real question is not who I am, in my opinion, Damien. Um, excuse me, but, I, but I'm answering as it, you know, I lived <laughs> yeah. it. It's what am I? What am I? And that's the quest I was on for two years. And here's, here's how I got the answer to that question. Uh, uh, I became a Mr. Mom. My ex-wife moved to, back to Chicago. Uh, the kids decided they wanted to live with me. I mean, wow, dad full-time. And I was literally a Mr. Mom for five wow. years. Wow. Took him to school, took him to the doctor, PTA meetings, the whole ball of wax, right? During the middle of the day, uh, I'll never forget, it was a Wednesday. I, I bought a video cassette. 
because I wanted to watch a movie that was had been out a little while, and I wanted to watch it called uh, Indecent Proposal. Robert Redford, yeah. Demi Moore, uh, Woody uh, Harrelson. Yeah. Okay, so there's a scene in the movie uh, where the story basically is Woody, bad economy, think about today, right? Bad economy, lost his job, lost his dream house, and lost uh, Demi to Robert Redford. Okay? Mm -hmm. He was lost. He couldn't even find a job. He ended up getting a job at a junior college. He was, a, he was recognized and acknowledged already as a brilliant architect. He couldn't find a job, and he got a job as a professor at a junior college, not the Demean Junior Colleges. But he got a job there, and the, the dean said, you're overqualified, but okay, I'll give you the job. Well, the students knew they were in the presence of a brilliant architect, the architectural students. So they had a scene in the, cl the classroom, students hanging off the stairway, and it was like a two-story room. Their, their legs were having, hanging over the second story, and they were just uh, melting in his presence, listening to every word. And he, there was a screen, obviously it's a movie, and, he, and uh, some icons of the world were showing, and he ultimately pulls out a brick. And now this, the scene is just of the brick, and he, and he says to the students, what is this? And the student said, it's a brick, and he kind of went, yeah. Another student said, it's a weapon, and there was some laughter, you know, mild laughter. But then he said, Louis Kahn, who was a real brilliant architect who had died uh, uh, long ago, he said, Louis Kahn said that even a brick wants to be something. And he said it a second way, but with a different cadence. Even a brick wants to be something. And while he was saying that, on the screen behind him were all these icons of the world, uh, you know, whatever, the Taj Mahal, the pyramids, whatever, icons, yeah, uh, Empire yeah. State and at that very moment, I had the answer to my question, and I literally broke down in tears. I mean, streaming tears. It goes like, I know what I am. I really am a brick. That's what. That's all I am. I'm just a brick. But I want to be something. And he, and looking at those icons of the world, I can only be something by being part of other people who also want to be something. And we can create edifices by having that attitude and that spirit and joining with others. And I was liberated that moment uh, with joy because I had the answer to my question, what am I? And I am a brick. So the opposite, I said, you know, blessings can become curse, curse blessings. Everything has an opposite. IBM taught us to go to a high aspirational level. Well, you have to go sometimes to the other end of that spectrum, to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest level. And to me, that was the admittance that all I really am, me, is a brick but I want to be something and I got to join with others. And if I do and have that attitude, we can make, we can change the world. And that's an honest story. That's what happened in my life. And that was in, um, 1995. Holy mother of God. <clears throat> I, I, that, that is unbelievable. That is absolutely unbelievable. Okay. Um, like I I'm, I'm, I need to go get that movie. Watch it now. <laughs> it's a great scene. As a matter of fact, I sometimes used it in my speeches. I show the clip of that scene, and I, I guarantee, you know, the the, the camera fill, uh, panned to the faces of the students, and you could see how much he had just penetrated their hearts and penetrated their minds on how to see the value of creation. Wow. I, and, I, and that these I, are the people that create that that is so incredible you're just you're wow you're just a brick but with I'm, just, other... I'm just a brick but i want to i want to be something so uh, i was born we were born out of dust right 
as yeah. if you believe in Christ. Okay, I was born out of dust and I'm going to die in dust. And so really, I'm that's the baseline. Wow. That's the baseline. I'm a brick. But bricks, yes. uh, bricks are what create buildings, structures, right? So I want to be an impactful brick. Uh, hi, Jeffrey. I see your, the, the movie was Indecent Proposal, um, 1994, I think is when it came in the market. Uh, Robert Redford, Demi Moore, and Woody Harrelson are the three main characters. You know this guy? I do. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, how you doing? Eric's, Eric's a good <laughs> dude. So, um, wow. Like, you, this, this is Kim. She's Kim's in Australia. I've been there about 25 times. I have great friends in Australia. My heart went out to you this whole time for all those fires that, uh, that I hear you recently have gotten over. So, um, yeah, I love Australia. Yeah. Bob Donnell's on here. I think he meant to say love you, brother. But love I, you too. No, I, that typing on a phone sometimes that happens. So, man, I am. My wife said, "Look what my wife's saying about you." <laughs> That's awesome, man. Oh, thank you, Jill. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm blown away. I, I mean, absolutely blown away. And so now you're going out. You're doing. I know you're a, a a speaker. You're doing a lot of speaking engagements all over the world, right? I have. Yep. Yep. All over. And, and, and so where can people, if they want to book you or they want to, uh, learn more about you, mikemuni.com, I'm assuming I've got your website scrolling. Yeah, I've got a, uh, thank you for doing that by the way. Uh, and I'm happy to answer anybody's questions, uh, or connect with you via zoom or Skype, if you want to continue a discussion, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, my email address is real simple, Mike at mikemuni.com. Mike uh, at mikemuni.com. There yeah. you go. So, um, yeah, I mean, you guys need to follow. And what are you active on social media? Any social media platform? You know, <laughs> I'm probably going to get my hands slapped here. I'm really not that much. Uh, I, I've been very cautious with it uh, because my DNA is real. Like I said, real connections, real people. Yeah. Now, I've met some real relationships as a result of social media. Don't get me wrong, but a very small amount. Uh, my view of it is it's more the illusion of relationships rather than the reality of it. I mean, I get so many people wanting to link up with me in LinkedIn. They don't even bother to write anything. Just want to, I want to link up with you. Right. Yeah. I mean, what incentive is there for me to say, okay. And for what purpose? I mean, if there's no purpose to link up, then yeah. why? And, and Facebook, you know, I love it for my family and keeping track of my extended family and all those kinds of some, you know, dear friends. I get that. Obviously. But I'm not uh, I'm not strong on it because I'm just very careful uh, with what I share, who I share yeah. it with, because I I want to be true to myself. I don't want to get caught up in it. Yeah, I I, I actually teach people how to act at, <laughs> <laughs> with social media. So yeah. I, I I think that um, again, it's like anything else. You can get what 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 you want out of it. Sure, really. so sure. I've made some unbelievable connections because of social media. You're one of them. You know, you, if it weren't for, for this, I wouldn't know you. And I'm, I'm so grateful to call you a friend and to know you. So, um, yeah, but see, so here's a good example. I mean, I agree with you, Ken. I mean, I do use social media. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, Bob Donnell and I are friends and, and uh, he's the one talk about reputation. How often people talk about you. He told you about me. Right. And that's basically how I extend and maintain and nurture yeah. my orbit, if you will. 
Yeah. And, and you know, like you create, you co-created an entire industry and that is like, that's absolutely mind blowing to me because now it's like, you know, there's a gazillion CRMs out there, but you are the, you and, and, and your, your partner were, I mean, you created that industry. It's mind blowing. So, uh, Hey, listen, thank you. We now have a record for the longest podcast I've ever done. So I'm shocked. <laughs> awesome. I love it, man. You kept me literally glued to the screen the entire time. So that doesn't oh, happen. Ken, we didn't, we didn't even get started. I, I can't tell you how I could have gone into other stories or even further depth. I kind of gave the glossed overview of a lot of things, and I'm telling the truth. I know, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, everybody go connect with Mike. Follow him on social media. Go to his website. If you want to have further conversation, he just opened up the door. Damien said he would be honored to connect with you. He's a great I look forward man. to it, Damien. Yeah. Yes. So um, everybody go follow. Mike, don't hang up on me. I'm going to end the live stream. Thank you to everybody who watched. A anyone who shared this out, thank you because, like, there's some valuable information. So yeah, Doug, you, Doug Walls is on here. He says, sounds like a follow-up interview. Definitely, man. Definitely. Happy to, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So thank you so much, everybody. Have an awesome yeah. day. And thank Mike, you. thanks again. Thank I appreciate you. you. Gotta get my Yeah, thank you. <laughs>